This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seth Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Mark Webb's 2012 film, The Amazing Spider-Man. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept. That's a movie fan, I just don't understand and this is almost as a movie fan who has a slight knowledge of comics i don't understand why is cyborg gonna be part of the justice league (laughs) who who i've never heard of him other than he's gonna be in the justice league and he's gonna get his own movie Um, who is he so basically cyborg is actually originally from uh one of my favorite comics runs although i'd struggle to say he was one of my favorite characters in it um but he was introduced in the early 1980s and was part of the lineup of the new teen titans um by writer marv wolfman and artist george perez Um, this is so weird my backup question if i hadn't have asked this was going to be who the t who the teen (laughs) titans are because i've seen them (laughs) popping up on like little news pieces oh yeah because they because they cancelled the teen titans didn't they yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they, uh, the new Teen Titans were essentially a, a reboot of the original. The original Teen Titans were basically in the maybe, probably the sixties, maybe fifties at the earliest. Probably the sixties. They put together a team of the the teen sidekicks of various characters. So it was Robin, Speedy, Kid Flash, and Wonder Girl. So in the early 80s, they did a, a revamp, and it was basically a massively shameless rip-off of um, Chris Claremont and John Byrne's X-Men, because basically that X-Men revival had been successful in throughout the second half of the 70s by rebooting an existing team with one or two established characters, but also bringing in new characters and having it be this young, very character-driven, almost soap opera-esque um comic that happened to have some superhero stuff in it as well it was basically a shameless wholesale ripoff of the entire 
concept of Uncanny X-Men, but it worked because it was really good, really well written, fantastic art by George Perez, and it was massively successful. Like, I'm pretty sure that for the first half of the 80s, like basically up until Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, New Teen Titans was DC's most successful thing in terms of like critical acclaim and sales and everything. Right. Um, so Cyborg was a character that I, he was introduced before it, but I think he was created specifically for Teen Titans, but he was just, he was given like a brief introduction beforehand. So he's been kicking around the DCU for, you know, what, um, 30 years basically. And it was then as part of the new 52 reboot, they made him a member of the Justice League. And to be honest, I think the reason they did so was that they were setting up a new Justice League for this new year. And it, I mean, I say new, it was essentially mostly the original lineup, but they realized how incredibly white it was and how right, okay. you know the justice league has never been particularly great for any kind of diversity um so you know i don't want to call it tokenism because that implies a certain level of cynicism but i think there was an element of look you know we're, we're partly setting up this new style dc with a view to moving into movies so we should have a justice league lineup that is probably going to be our movie justice league lineup and it looks pretty bad if... I mean, it's bad enough that there's only one woman in the team but and, and that it's Wonder Woman. But, you know, it's bad enough that you basically got this all-white team. Um, you know, I don't know why they had to have Hal Jordan as Green Lantern in it. It could have had Jon Stewart. but And I think that would have worked because he's a recognisable character from the cartoons as well. Um, but essentially, so... As of the new fifty two, Cyborg is a founder member of the Justice League. Uh, and so what's his deal? Is he just Robocop? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Basically he was like a um high school football star type guy. And his right. dad was a scientist working in cybernetics and stuff. And um I think something happens. There's some basically because his his dad works at Star Labs. And there's some kind of incident, and uh, Vic, uh, his name's Vic Stone, gets horrifically injured, and his dad basically uses his um, cybernetics and prosthetics knowledge to give him this new half-robotic body. And, I mean, to be honest, if I was going to liken him to anyone, he's a bit like the thing from the Fantastic Four, in that he's got this kind of... in like Personality-wise, he's not totally dissimilar, and he's got this sort of constant struggle of feeling like he's a monster um and you know kind of struggling to get close to people and not thinking that people can see past the fact that he's this you know half man half machine kind of thing um let's move on now to take a look at some of the comic book movie and tv news um from the past like month i guess um although it's it's been a pretty quiet christmas period so you know we picked a good time to do some um award shows instead of dropping dropping news bombs on you um, but the most exciting thing, as far as I was concerned, was seeing the Doctor Strange costume for the first time. Um, now, I I was kind of a little bit sceptical of Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange, just because I, I thought visually he didn't look quite like what I was expecting. And also, I like I think I think Benedict Cumberbatch can be a fantastic actor when he's doing his one thing, um, and when he's not doing that one thing, less so. But these first images of him, I thought were really, really, really good. Um, he looks the part, and the costume is incredible. Discuss. Um, I basically agree. I mean, in, in, in as much <laughs> as I don't have a huge amount of pre-existing investment in Doctor Strange, if you said they're doing a Doctor Strange movie, that's pretty much how you'd want the character to look. 
<laughs> My only complaint is that he looks very young. And I always see Doctor Strange as a kind of, you know, like older figure within the superhero community. We've established on previous podcasts though, James, your, you know, your age guesses are, are pretty off. I mean, <laughs> you thought Kristen Ritter was about 21, I think, before, before Jessica Jones. <laughs> Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch um, is 40 next year so this year it is 2016 yeah Doctor Strange should be like he should have the graying temples like be in his 50s sort of thing well he does does have the graying temples here does he though yeah Yeah. he does he definitely does you can see him in the picture and you can have graying temples in your 30s definitely (laughs) (laughs) um I wanted to ask you about a couple of the things that um, Kevin Feige was um, speaking about, about the costume. Um, and um, speaking of time, this is this is the other interesting thing um, I thought that Kevin Feige had to say. He was talking about the Eye of Agamotto. Is that how you say it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that's basically, that's this necklace that he has around his neck. It's kind of... So- yeah, we we have to be quite wary about this because the last time there was something in pictures and every and Marvel wanted us all to think it was an Infinity Stone and we went, it's not an Infinity Stone, and then it was an Infinity Stone. So now we've got another thing where Marvel wants everyone to go, it's an Infinity Stone, and are, are we going to put our necks on the line and say it's not an Infinity Stone? He's again? got the Time Stone around his neck. Yeah, I'm not, he has, I'm not he has touching this with stone. a ten football. <laughs> so Kevin Feige said. That in this film, the eye is a very important relic that can be quite dangerous if used in the wrong hands, because it has the ability to do any number of things, the most dangerous of which is it can sort of manipulate probabilities, which is another way of saying, screw around with time, which is part of our story. And in the middle of it, there's a green stone. I mean, it's like a shiny of... green stone. Yeah. It's the time gem. It isn't seems it? like even more of a double bluff than uh, <laughs> the, the vision was, but no, I, I think they would have to be just taking the piss if it's not an infinity star. I, th- I think we all know the score now i mean <laughs> on, it's weird on a cause... similar note kevin feige this week described the new spider-man the solo spider-man movie as it was shaping up to look pretty spectacular i wonder what they're gonna call that movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry james I, I, I was just gonna say like in the in the comics it's kind of it's basically a trinket which reveals like magical spells and stuff like it's a it's a real sort of minor plot device in that he can point it at things and go oh there's sorcery here i can see it with the eye of agamotto so i've been reading the new the all new all different run uh doctor strange um and in that he kind of like a third eye opens up on his forehead Mm -hmm. and he can see kind of everything that's going on in the magical realm yeah. Um, but given that I don't really know much about the character, I didn't know whether that was like. I I didn't I, I didn't even know that there was kind of like a physical thing. I think that's that was yeah. That's how they're. I think that's how they're portraying it in this series. But in right, the past, okay. it was kind of he wore it around his neck and it sort of shone a light on things. Uh, the new series is good as well. Yeah, I read the first couple it, of but... issues and it was good. Yeah, I'll go back I'm and really... pick it up at some point. Um, the second piece of news is also um, Marvel related and um, it's that Ryan Coogler um, who is the director of uh, Fruitvale Station and more recently Creed um, he is going to be directing the Black Panther movie Um, now um, Creed isn't out here yet Um, I haven't seen it I don't know if you guys have seen it Um, but 
um, there's a lot, a lot of buzz about this guy. Um, I know there's a lot of there's even Oscar buzz for Creed, um, and um, I, I think it's exciting that this young talented director is doing the movie. Um, but I wonder what you guys thought about the whole debate about, <clears throat> you know, if you're doing a female superhero you get in a female director and if you're doing a black superhero you get in a black director and whether that is necessarily uh, whether that's a necessary thing or whether it is you know kind of like oh well we'll give them that one yeah i mean again it, yeah it, it comes back to like you you know you, you don't ever want it to just be tokenism you know it's but i think i think now yeah you know it, for example if you know if you're doing like a wonder woman film or a captain marvel film I think you do need to have a pretty good reason why a male director is better placed to tell that story. And it's mm. you know it's it's not like oh you know you have to have women directors doing films about women characters and male directors doing films about male characters. You know there should be more women directors doing films about the male characters as well. Um I just think it's more I think what it is is like Already, we're at a point where too many of the people making these films are white men, and usually white men of a certain age. And, and you know, it's particularly a problem with the comics as well. So, you know, as it is, we need to get more people who aren't white men directing the regular, not regular, but you know, directing the films about all the white male characters and writing all the comics about the white male characters. So, at the same time, you sort of you don't also want the people who are doing too many of them to be doing the ones in the other direction. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't want to sort of mm. just put a dividing line between things, you know, the sort of, <laughs> but, um, it does, it, uh, uh, it does feel like these new films. I mean, Ryan Coogler was asked about it and he said, um, where's the quote? He said, I think there is a potential for, for a greater truth when a filmmaker comes from a particular culture that they're dealing with. That's not to say a filmmaker can't work outside his or her cultural space, but I do believe that the opportunity for yeah. the films to have more nuance, nuance will come when, you, uh, when you're looking at filmmakers that bring a little bit of that from their personal experience. Um, and I think as well and- with a character like Black Panther, where his nationality and his ethnicity is a pretty significant part of the character and his background. Um, it's like... Like Falcon, for example, like you, you wouldn't recast Falcon to be a white actor. That would, you know, be <laughs> a horrendous piece of whitewashing. But at the same time, everything about the character of the Falcon so far hasn't really been tied. Like particularly, I mean, in the in the films specifically, hasn't been tied into his racial identity. You know, he mm. happens to be black, but it's not like a core part of his character. But a core part of the Black Panther is the fact that he's African. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there is a certain amount of cultural sensitivity that you need to have with it. Mm. And you would you would hope that basically what happens, like it is a shame that it comes to these movies to be like, oh, well, now we'll bring in a black director yeah, because exactly. we have the black yeah. hero. It's a shame that it hasn't happened before now. Having but at said least that, it's a if start. This means that, yeah, <laughs> if this means that now... Ryan Coogler is one of the names who is up for all of the big blockbusters if he wants to make them. That's great. Um, Okay, um, we'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of The Amazing Spider-Man. 
but before we dive in, let's listen to the original trailer for the movie and see if you can spot a theme of something that's not in the movie. <laughs> How did you get out there? The fire escape. It's 20 stories. Your doorman's intimidating. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Mr. Parker. Not much to tell, really. Peter lives with his aunt and uncle. Did you catch that spider guy yet? No, but we will. This guy wears a mask like an outlaw. I think he's trying to do something maybe the police can't. Can't? <laughs> you know, if you're gonna steal cars, don't dress like a car thief. You a cop? You seriously think I'm a cop? In a skin tie, red and blue suit. Who are you? I know it's been rough for you, Peter. <laughs> I forgot all about that thing. It was your dad's. Your father was a very secretive man, Peter. Dr. Connors, I'm Richard Parker's son. Your father and I were going to change the lives of millions, including mine. Extraordinary. How did you come up with this? There's a rumor of a new species in New York. It can be aggressive if threatened. I gotta stop him, because I created him. That's not your job. Maybe it is. Thirty-eight of New York's finest versus one guy in a unitard. Whoa! If you want the truth, Peter, come and get it. I am issuing an arrest warrant for the masked vigilante known as Spider-Man. I'm in trouble. Okay, so that was one of the trailers for The Amazing Spider-Man. Um, but before we get into deep discussing this film, um, we should talk about the film that, you know, almost we could be listening to the trailer for right now, which was Spider-Man 4. Because this film was... it has a, it ha- The Amazing Spider-Man kind of emerged in a really interesting way. So we had, obviously, the Spider-Man franchise, which I think... The, was was Spider Man three in two thousand and seven, guys? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it and obviously it wasn't received well. In fact, it was received very poorly. But hadn't quite killed that the Spider Man franchise. And Sam Raimi was very keen on coming back and doing Spider Man four and getting it right this time. Tobey Maguire was absolutely up for doing it. And um, a script was developed, and it was widely known that John Malkovich was being lined up to play the Vulture. You know, he's since confirmed that that pretty much was happening. And Anne Hathaway was in line to... Some people at the time seemed to think that she was going to be playing like a female accomplice of the Vulture called the Vultress. But in fact, she was going to be Black Cat. 
I can't imagine Anne Hathaway as a cat themed. <laughs> it just it just stretches credibility. Well, Sam Raimi said in an interview recently um, that he hadn't seen um, The Dark Knight Rises, but could only imagine that Anne Hathaway was amazing in it because the stuff that she was doing in auditions just I mean, absolutely were- blew him away. There are kind of lots of ways in which Anne Hathaway's Catwoman is actually closer to the black cat than it is to Catwoman. <laughs> I mean, the two characters aren't entirely dissimilar anyway, but like her, 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 her that version of the character's background and her kind of Robin the Rich attitude feels more Felicia Hardy than Selina Carr to me. Yeah. But then again, it is quite Selina Carr. They're just basically the same character. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that at that time, as that film was being talked about on the kind of the movie blogs, and it was probably at the height of me being really plugged into movie news kind of every day. Um, one of my favourite websites, The Playlist, um, I was kind of just constantly reading on there the, the news updates and getting excited about the prospects of Spider-Man 4 coming back and righting the wrongs of Spider-Man 3. Um, and because I still like had so much affection for that series and thought, yeah, mm. wouldn't it be nice if they could if they could fix right that wrong? And there was talk about maybe there being a Spider-Man 5 that was being developed as well to follow it straight up. Um, but the film was being delayed because of um, apparently um, disputes with the studio about which villains were going to be used. And apparently, basically, um, Sony wanted anyone but the Vulture. And Sam <laughs> Raimi very specifically wanted John Malkovich as the Vulture. I mean, the Vulture's not the best villain, but Malkovich is really great casting for it. And you would think after Spider-Man 3, they would have learned that yeah. you, go, you go with Sam Raimi's choice for a villain, not the studio's choice yeah, for a villain. You would. Right? Like, Raimi just wanted to do the, the sort of original Lee Ditko villains, didn't he? Mm. It's not a surprise, because those are some of the best, and it's not, you know, it's not a coincidence, I think, that they did the lizard in this one. But... That didn't happen. And the reason that didn't happen is because Sony were, at the same time as developing Spider-Man 4, were simultaneously developing a reboot, which ended up being The Amazing Spider-Man. And basically, Sony were in this position without publicly saying that they were working on a reboot. Um, They were doing, and basically took the decision that when the Sam Raimi version of Spider-Man 4 got delayed... They had a script ready to make into a movie, which was The Amazing Spider-Man. And they had a script? Just, yeah, so it was it was written by uh, James Vanderbilt, who was, who was one of the writers on this. Um, this movie was written, you say? <laughs> it was indeed. One of the writers on this was working on Spider... I think he was working on a treatment for a Spider-Man 5 for Sony, um, and had also had a hand in Spider-Man 4, um, but they basically said to him, as one of his scripts write a reboot which is what he did and ultimately <laughs> they went for that instead and decided and it was really really sudden there was all this news that Spider-Man 4 you know this uh, John Malkovich is pretty much cast and Halfway is pretty much cast and then Sony released a press release and I think this was as late as kind of like February March 2010 and bearing in mind this film came out in 2012 um, just saying Hey, Spider-Man 4, not happening anymore, but we are rebooting the franchise, um, a new remake, um, It's we've got a script, it's been written by James Vanderbilt, it's going to be directed by Mark Webb, because his name, and um, <laughs> get ready for that in 2012. And it was just really, really sudden, and I remember being really disappointed and kind of going, ah, 
Uh, okay. I mean, you'd I mean, be, to be fair, you'd be disappointed with the Sam Raimi coming off virtually anything. So instead, we do get The Amazing Spider-Man, comes out in 2012, obviously directed by Mark Webb, who had come off doing 500 Days of Summer, um, a ridiculously overrated film. Um, I like it. Uh, <laughs> it's, got I can a, it's, I... it's got a gimmick that hides plot and misogyny. Um, it's one of those films that that I like while fully understanding why some people actively hate it, put it that yeah, way. That's, that's me. And, um, yeah, so Mark, Mark Webb got this gig. Obviously, Andrew Garfield cast as Peter Parker. Um, we lose Mary Jane, and in her place we get Gwen Stacy, played by Emma Stone. Um, and it's an origin story again. Um, and the villain is the lizard. And when when you're hearing all this stuff, guys, leading up to the film... What's the thought there? What, were you excited by the prospect of this, or I was think, it was it literally the thing that everyone was saying was, isn't this a bit too soon? Yeah, like Spider Man's origin is so famous and it was done so well that the idea of revisiting it did not excite me in the slightest. But also, if you're going to just reset things and go back and redo the origin. Why do you do the lizard as the first villain? It's like if you're rebooting anyway, then like I can understand doing the lizard when you've already done Green Goblin and Doctor Octopus. Like after that, he he can be reasonably unless you're doing Spider Gwen. Well, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you're doing Spider Gwen, you can have the lizard. Um, But yeah, it's just and I, I think the thing of having the lizard is I think a symptom of how wishy washy they were over admitting that they were doing a full reboot because this is a full reboot nothing about this film is compatible with the continuity of no. the Sam Raimi films no, at all even not. down to the fact that even though they've done the lizard because the lizard hasn't been done before um, it has Peter meeting him for the first time in a completely different context so it's just you know it is not the Kurt Connors of the Sam Raimi films Peter is not the Peter of the Sam Raimi films it is a completely new continuity but in advance of this film coming out they were trying to to describe it as like a soft reboot mm. so it was you know oh, we're tweaking some things and we are going back and retelling the story but it's more that we're bringing it into a you know present day timeline and we're going back and kind of filling in the gaps i wonder whether that's a relic of this having that co-development with spider-man 4 and 5 well maybe back in those days that was was. yeah there was kind of the idea that raimi would do spider-man 4 and that maybe spider-man 5 would be that soft reboot Mm. Um, which is fair enough and makes sense but it's just well not fair enough it makes sense because you still don't need to go back and redo the origin but it's just (laughs) i I just think (laughs) If they're going to do this, and doing it was a bad idea, they should have committed to it more than they did. It's interesting. The thing that always I found interesting was everyone was saying, it's, what, 11 years since um, the first Spider-Man, and, you know, that's too soon to do the origin again. Whereas I just remember thinking, I mean, you can say it's 11 years, and that sounds too soon, but actually... It's only five years since the last actual Spider-Man movie. Yeah, that, you know, that's which... the thing. I, I, I don't. If they had done one Spider-Man film in two thousand and two, and then another one a decade later, yeah, retelling the origin wouldn't be as much of a problem because I mean, it, you know, it, it's ten years. It's, it's essentially a remake a decade later. That's that's a reasonable. That's not that much shorter than the gap between Batman eighty nine and, and Batman Begins. No, and it's a decade gives you like a new generation of teenagers yeah. as well. Whereas yeah. if you were if you're sixteen when the Amazing Spider Man's coming out, you can probably remember Spider Man three being in cinemas. 
and yeah. maybe going to see it. But I think a- another problem, I think, is that this origin was already done so well by the Sam Raimi films. It's like mm. for the for the faults of those three films, particularly the third one, you know, it nailed that story in a quite generation defining sense like you know that film came out and was immediately one of the biggest films of all time and had the biggest opening weekend of all time so anyone who was old enough to see it in 2002 or in the few years that follows probably saw it so that you have a very large audience who even if they don't know it from the fact that he's a really iconic comics character a lot of people who know Spider-Man's origin and the major plot beats and how it plays out everyone knows that he gets bitten by a spider and then his Uncle Ben gets shot and it's partly his fault and that's what drives Mm. him to be Spider-Man everyone knows that and it was told really really well by the Sam Raimi film why do we need to waste an hour of a film reiterating that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, who, who is going to see Amazing it, Spider-Man who why, doesn't know that story? Why not just sit through it in 10, 15 minutes? That's the thing. It's kind of like franchise-itis though, isn't it? It's like they mm. they weren't seeing this as a movie. They were seeing it as the like kickoff of a string of movies. Mm. Yeah. But it's just, I mean, you know, for all of my problems with Man of Steel... I would fully agree that Man of Steel needed to be an origin story, even though Superman's origin has been retold many times. You know, this was a reboot like 30 odd years after the last time that story was told on the screen. So, fair enough. You know, I think they did it in a bad way, but the, you know, I, I can have no complaints about your first new Superman film being an origin. Whereas if they did a new Batman film now, they shouldn't do the origin because Batman Begins has got that covered. Hmm. And because the, you know, the Tim Burton films hadn't really done the origin because they didn't feel the need to. It does sort of beg the question of what is the statute of limitations on doing your origin <laughs> story? Like when, when would you accept a new Iron Man origin story? In Iron Man's case, never, because you can't recast <laughs> Iron Man. But, um, you know... I, I I would say like twenty years because I think that's a yeah that's I think a that's, full generation that's a generation yeah, yeah. It, and yeah. It, but it, again it, it matters about what you know what the context is I don't think I don't think anyone cared that the new Fantastic Four film was doing the origin again because <laughs> no, because no one had any yeah. affection for the first version that that's the key thing I think yeah is is the fact that it was such an iconic and well done version <laughs> so recently. Yeah, um, I think we're going to get into actually getting into the nitty-gritty of the film, um, but I just thought I should probably set my stall out personally, and um, you guys can feel free to step in and respond to this in any way you like. But um, I'm going to be playing the role of James on this podcast, because <laughs> this film, I I have such contempt for this film on <laughs> such a fundamental level. Like... For me, this film is a, like, for, for, for a start, it's two and a quarter hours, but it's two and a quarter hours of surface-level competence masking complete ineptitude at almost <laughs> every level of the storytelling. Almost every single level. This film tries to tell three or four different stories and doesn't tell any of them. There are no stories being told. There is no development in this film. There are a few, there are a few things that are good about it, and mostly they are in the casting. And apart from that, it's a complete fucking clusterfuck. And e- even more so in the co- in the context of having seen Amazing Spider-Man two since this, <laughs> this movie is bad, and it Without- has got it has got by on being recognised as okay, fine, competent. Because I think basically Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. 
and even that romance doesn't work because of the way that the story handles it. I mean, I don't, I don't think either of us are going to disagree hugely with that. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I mean, everything that you've said just there, and and that level of vitriol, <laughs> I would reserve that for the second <laughs> for the one. sequel, yeah, because the sequel is the one that actually actively offends me in a way like almost to the level of man of steel yeah that's that's the one that dismantles the character i'll be honest i distill all of that into the last 10 or 15 minutes of the amazing spider-man 2 which um i i don't like but i haven't just watched this Mm. film like (laughs) in terms of dismantling the character I, i feel like the character of peter parker here is he's a garbage human being an absolute garbage human being. He is a bully flu- frequently throughout the movie. Um, he takes the main mantra of the movie and ignores it. Um, <laughs> and basically, over the course of the film, starts out as a bad person and ends as a worse person, even though he has got superpowers in the interim. I mean, starting out as a bad person isn't necessarily a bad starting point no no it's not um you know i mean that that can you can say that that comes straight from amazing fantasy 15 well i think i think one like i think we did it we mentioned this in the last spider-man film but one of the most overlooked aspects of peter parker's personality is that he is occasionally a little bit selfish yeah like that's that's in the text that's something that you can model in your film. But the problem is that this film doesn't have him learn the lesson from the death of Ben that he's supposed to. Yeah. I just I just um, feel like it it like and, and most of what I know about Spider-Man as a character and about Peter Parker as a character comes from those first three movies and a bit of comics context. But just what I understand of that character is that this is a flawed guy who basically he's the guy that anyone can aspire to be because we're all this we're, we're just he's he's a flawed a normal guy is kind of selfish and the whole great power must come great responsibility thing is about a guy trying to not that that responsibility not coming naturally to him and having to learn and earn that and this movie seems to get that wrong twice in that he doesn't have that responsibility at the start and fails to get it. But also at the start of the film, they try and show him being a surface level nice guy. Like when he's helping out the kid who's getting bullied pre pre him getting his powers. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't work for that version of the character either. Well, also, Pete, Peter should be the kid who's getting bullied. Yeah. <laughs> he shouldn't yeah. be the one <laughs> stopping Flash from bullying someone. He should be the kid getting bullied. And, and in this, I mean, the, the way that um, Andrew Garfield plays him and the way that he's written, he is kind of smug, cocky... Yeah. I like I feel like he's kind of a jock to begin with. Like <laughs> yeah. the way that he like the way that he humiliates Flash in that basketball scene is and I know that's after he's got his powers and that's kind of in the selfish phase of the character. But I mean I, there is that selfish phase of the character seems to go on for an awful <laughs> long time. Do you know do you know what what he's acting like there? He's acting like um Peter in Spider-Man 3 when he's infected by the, the symbiote. Yeah. 
and he's and he's yeah. being a, a cocky douche. It's like <laughs> you know, Spider Man Three had to invent a plot point to to have those scenes, which you know, spoilers for when we get to that film. But they're the best thing about that film, and I, it baffles me that people hate all of that stuff in Spider Man Three because I think it's hilarious. I think it's meant to be funny, and it is funny. Um, this film plays it straight almost i mean i know you get when he breaks the kind of the i i, I do like in that scene when he shatters the back but it's supposed to be seen as this big triumphant moment and then he breaks the thing and then it's like oh i was a bit of a dick but even then it isn't really followed up on like it should there should have been more in the way of people looking at him and going god you're an idiot after that and it doesn't really yeah, it just yeah. skips straight to him in the principal's office well, and so then, you're, you're unsure whether you're supposed to be on his side at that point but that scene should only play out as you not being on Peter's side yeah and but then sure the first time that he is properly in the suit taking on a criminal oh no that's great sorry but I was going to say I, yeah I, that's, that's good well see that's, I really I, I feel like that's a continuation of yet yeah, like Yes, he's wisecracking, but he's doing it to the point of taunting, uh, and okay. he's doing it, and, and, and the way he kind of, oh, like, James. fires a web at his mouth, and fires a web at his well, crotch, and this is just seems to be reveling in this, like, like I feel like it's the continuation of a bully. This, I kind of wonder if this is something that, because you're mainly familiar with the Raimi films, you don't like as much as me and Seb, because the whole point of Spider-Man in the costume is that he... He uses the wisecracks and the taunts to try and distract criminals. Like, admittedly, in that scene, he's got the upper hand to a much larger extent. But he's got him. He's got him pinned to the wall and keeps throwing the webs at him. Well, yeah, but like to a point, that's something Spider-Man would do in the comics. I think it's probably yeah. right that he wouldn't be taunting him to that extent. But like webbing up his mouth as he swings off or whatever is completely in. Context. But I also think. If you're looking back to early Spider-Man and you're looking back to Lee Ditko Spider-Man, there is an element of, you know, Peter Parker is this embittered nerd, basically. And, yeah, at at heart, he's a good guy and he's Spider-Man because he knows that it's the right thing to do. But particularly in the early days, when he puts on the Spider-Man costume, he is completely liberated from having to be Peter Parker, nerdy Peter Parker. That's something they lose. Yeah, like, it's yeah. By by the time he goes to college, and the comics kind of really shift in tone, and kind of I think get better. Actually, I think I think the best period is yeah, before yeah, yeah. Dick Co leaves, but after he's gone to college, and they've introduced Harry and, and Gwen mm-hmm. and everyone. Um, but in those early appearances, he is a. I mean, in Amazing Spider-Man number one, he breaks into the Fantastic Four's headquarters <laughs> and says, "Giz a job," and the Fantastic Four are just like, "Who is this dickhead?" <laughs> And it's and it works. It's fun. It's great. But the point is, in those early days, like his default reaction is, I've got a costume and powers, and sure, I'm 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 you know taking down criminals because it's the right thing to do. But I'm having fun doing it because I hate them, and I'm basically bullying back the bullies. You see, I wonder um, whether I'm doubling down in this sequence because he doesn't go out there and go, okay, my uncle Ben was killed. I'm going to go out there and try and fight crime. He goes out yep. there on a mission to find the guy who mm. killed his uncle Ben. That's the thing. Doesn't he, go out there to try and save anyone else. And then when he has yeah. that dinner table scene with Captain Stacy, he's explaining why Spider-Man is a force for good, which in the Raimi films when if Peter Parker yeah, was saying if he that was to talking Jonah. about if he was talking about Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man in that dinner table yeah, scene, yeah, I'd agree. Right, but he's talking about himself, so he's wrong. But no, but I, I'm 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 watching that scene and thinking, 
Captain Stacy's right. Like right now, he's yeah. not. He's not a force mm. of good. He's a guy going out there trying to find the guy who killed his uncle Ben, and we don't know what he's going to do when he finds him. Yeah, that's the. I mean, that that car thief. Yeah, he's he's not attacking that car thief because he's a car thief. He's attacking him because he thinks he might be Ben's killer, and that yeah. is that is. It might not seem like a big detail to be different, but it does throw a completely different shade on the thing. I mean, in and of itself, I enjoy that scene because um, that that to me is Spider Man looking and acting very like Spider Man. Um, I, I would go so far as to say that's. Of all the movies, that's probably the most Spider-Man from the comics. Well, there's also, I mean, right through to the bit immediately after that, when he's escaping from the cops, and the way that he looks and the way that he moves, and he's very kind of thin and spindly, and when he's kind of swinging away, that whole sequence is, I think, yeah, the most um, comics-y Spider-Man in costume that's that's been done on Maybe film. if it had better context around it then, but for me, I think the the way that I was viewing that character at that point in the film because, like, mm. I I wanted more wisecracking from this Spider-Man when, when I knew it was happening. And, and what's weird is that the film does it so much there and then later in the <laughs> film when yeah. he is supposed to be a slightly more selflessly heroic except it all leads back to him, so he's not really... But that's when the wisecracking just stops, and he just, broods. It, he broods for the rest from, of the movie. Yeah, apart from that scene, it doesn't want to have fun. And the whole point about a wisecracking Spider-Man is that you know he is having fun doing it and being wisecracking. And it's yeah, just, like you can you can do the earnest Tobey Maguire thing if you want. Like that's mm. a valid interpretation. But if you're going to do the wisecracking, having fun version, it should probably be a through line throughout your entire interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we? I, I mean, I was talking about the plot strands that I felt mm. basically because I, I I really do feel that this film doesn't tell any stories I, I don't know what if someone asked me what is the story of The Amazing Spider-Man I guess I'd say like Spider-Man stops a villain called the Lizard but apart from in, that in and of itself isn't a story that's like two panels in a comic book yeah um so, so I would say like the four main plot strands of this movie are: you've got the origin story, which I think we've kind of already talked about, is basically retelling a lot of stuff that was done better ten years earlier and dragging it out and sapping all of the fun out of it. Um, and so there's, but there's no, there's no real story in that origin other than. This is what you've seen already. We then spend this whole film of him, you know, you could say, is the story him learning to be Spider-Man, great power, great responsibility. Well, he doesn't do that because of the line that he says at the end of the film about breaking the promise, Blech. which proves he is a garbage human being. Um, you could say, is the story about him hunting down Ben's killer? No, because he just stops doing that. <laughs> is the story his romance with Gwen Stacy? Well, you could say the story is the romance with Gwen Stacy, but that story would be guy flirts with girl, girl flirts back, they hook up. Yeah. <laughs> and that's... There's, like, there's, there's no conflict in that relationship at any point. The only conflict that could be there is Gwen's dad 
but they just keep dating and Gwen's dad doesn't really know that it's <laughs> he, happening. He, he's so killed not... and there's no problem. Yeah, well, uh, but there should be. There should be a huge moral <laughs> yeah. dilemma in yeah. that promise that he makes, but there's oh, not. God. It's that last line as well. The last line the fourth... of the film. <sighs> yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. And then the fourth main plot strand, I would say, is going back to the lizard, which is the only one that I could say is actually something that progresses as a start to finish. We meet a guy, he turns into a villain. But then I'm, I'm looking at that character and saying, well, who is Kurt Connors? Yeah. Well, it doesn't um, matter because Kurt <laughs> Connors and the lizard ultimately aren't related because it, it just becomes like a kind of Jekyll and Hyde monster. Where- and also the film spends so much time on oh, you're, he's doing these experiments because there's something wrong with Norman Osborn but we don't know what it is and, and what's going on and why is he needed and what and that's just completely thrown out the window as well. As soon yeah. as he first turns into the lizard, everything else to do with Oscorp and what's going on there is forgotten. Mm. And actually, while we've... I mean, I don't know if it's something we'll get into in detail, but while we've touched on Osborn, how can a seriously made, supposedly competent film in this day and age get released where they they go, well, we haven't yet cast the guy who might be the villain in the next film. So in a scene where they're going into his building and talking about him, we'll just have a big black silhouette of a face and say that that's Norman Osborn. <laughs> it's just, how glaringly conspicuous could they be about not having cast Norman Osborn <coughs> as to put a big silhouette on a screen? Just yeah. Oh, Janet Van Dyne in Ant Man. Yeah, yeah. Here's my here's a best photo of your mother where a hat is covering ninety percent of her face. Might be my favourite moment from any movie last year. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I could almost I could forgive it slightly more in Ant Man because you could sort of see the logic, but I think the thing here is there was no reason to show it at that point. It was actually them admitting we have not yet cast Norman Osborn and we're being really conspicuous well, about it. Let's let's get back into that kind of stuff because there is there are two things that happen at the end of the film that I think are interesting and point back to um, a big glaring problem with this movie. Now, the first is the post-credit sequence in which a shadowy figure walks up to Risa fans and basically says, "Did you tell him the truth about his father?" And we don't know who that is, and. Um, Neither did Mark Webb or any of the screenwriters or anyone at Sony. It, they they hadn't decided who that character was. It could have been Electro, but obviously it wasn't because they ended up going in a different direction with that character. Could have been Norman Osborn. It wasn't. Um, and I think they ended up using the gentleman. Is it a a, a more modern Spider-Man character? Uh, it was Mister Fears, wasn't it? I can't well, even. But, it was, I didn't even realise that it was actually. I was some. It's some very minor. But basically, Guy. it's it, what, what that points to is that they had a post-credit scene, and they didn't know what it, it was. It was baseless franchise building. It's ah, uh, let's mm. do a tease for the next movie. That tease could be anything. We haven't decided. <coughs> I just always yet. thought it was meant to be Osborne. Although you know, I'd completely forgotten that that existed. And when I watched the film last night, I actually turned off before mm. getting to that because I forgot it was even yeah. there. Uh, as did I. I mean the. The bizarre thing about that as well is that it's not even followed up in the sequel. Y- yeah. <laughs> like, well, the character well, because... turns up, but nothing about Peter's father gets revealed in any meaningful sense. Um, so it was just that the second moment at the end of the movie is, like, Peter is sat in his um, English class, I assume, with the teachers talking about how there are ten main types of story, but she maintains that there's only one, and that is, who am I? Which... 
seems to be the film saying, like speaking its themes out loud, this is what our film's been about. Who is Peter Parker? Which, when you go back to the start of the movie and the marketing of the movie and this untold story of Spider-Man, which was how the movie was marketed, and there was going to be something tying into his parents, and um, there's a line in one of the trailers about um, Peter says, um, we all have secrets, the ones we keep and the ones that are kept from us. Now, clearly there was a big, big edit in this movie that took out all of that stuff about this different origin of Peter Parker. So we get the standard origin, we don't get the new stuff, but the spine of it is still in the movie. And there's this whole mystery that is hinted at about Peter's parents because they're in the first scene of the movie and Peter discovers this briefcase and Risa Fan's um, Kurt Connors was the partner of Richard Parker. And yet none of it's there. It's so bizarre that it was just completely edited out of the film. Well, it's like when, you, when you're saying, like, what is this film about? I kind of get the sense that it was supposed to be about Peter's search for the truth about his parents and himself. Yeah, so, yeah, as a result of his identity. Know, yeah, that would have been the film. But at some point they got cold feet and went, actually, all this is nonsense that doesn't inform the character... <clears throat> we're going to have to cut it out. And so you're left with this kind of strips of a movie that don't really hold together very well. And that stuff that was edited out came out two, three months before the movie was released because (laughs) the trailers and the first two trailers and the first poster for this movie lean heavily on this idea of this being the untold story of Spider-Man. And you can see the spine of it in the film. You You can almost figure out what that was i mean um seb you you're uh, i mean you you know spider-man's origin inside out and what works about this character um how would you have felt if they'd have gone in the direction that the film hints that it was going to <laughs> even worse about the film than i do already <laughs> it's just it's like <sighs> The problem with it is that, I mean, I guess what, what what we're talking about and what you kind of extrapolate from the information that's in the film is that Peter had already had his DNA changed in some way via experiments that his father had done. Mm-hmm. And that is why when he gets bitten by the spider, he gets the powers. And essentially the implication is he's, only, he's in part, he's Spider-Man because of who his father was and what his father did. And so if anyone else had happened to get bitten by that spider, they would not have become spider They would have become some kind of lizard-like creature, but a spider. Yeah, at best. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Um, And that just completely fundamentally breaks Spider-Man as a character because it means that he's inherently special. And that's just... That's not what Spider-Man is. There's there's a there's a, a tagline that's that's used about Spider-Man um, on occasion, particularly in the sixties, that he's you know the hero who could be you. The whole point about the existence of Spider-Man was let's create a hero that the that our nerdy comic book readers could imagine could be them. If only they had happened to be at the science lab that particular day and got bitten by that spider, they would be Spider-Man. It's like you can't be 
um, Kal-El because you weren't born on Krypton and you can't be Bruce Wayne because you weren't <laughs> born to incredibly rich parents. But you could be Peter Parker because you could get bitten by a spider and, and you're, a, you're a geek as well. And, you know, so you'd have his sciencey brain and, and you would become Spider-Man. That's, that's a pretty key fundamental part of the appeal of Spider-Man hmm. and has been for 50 years. You know, admittedly, and actually, I was going to say, admittedly, you know, when he's going off and marrying supermodels, actually, in the 90s, when they had him marrying Mary Jane, there were a lot of Spider-Man readers who were like, you've moved him away from the identifiable, this could be us character, because you've turned him into this guy who marries a supermodel. Mm. And actually, you know... (laughs) And they spent a lot of the 90s trying to fix that as well. (laughs) Yeah. To varying varying degrees of success. (laughs) Well, yeah. Um, people like a Spider-Man that they can identify with. That's the point. You can't identify with him if he's the product of a specific genetic, uh, <laughs> you know, um, bit of experimentation by his genius father. It's it just is, it's kind of a it's kind of like a millennial. Everyone is special. You are the chosen one. Narrative exactly. that's quite popular in basically every film. Like it's it's it, it's you know everyone really is harry potter affecting films yeah it. yeah it's like i don't blame the harry potter films for it but you can trace it to that as one of the um the matrix you know, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah true <laughs> i mean it is that it is that classic kind of hero's journey stuff but and you're right that doesn't work for this character and i think every fan who saw the trailer and saw that it was hinting at that went Whoa! What the fuck? That—that's what you're doing with Spider-Man, and the internet was awash with that, and that may be why that has been removed from the film. Mm. Now, I—I I wonder whether the film would have been actually with that plot in it, because there's so clearly so much stuff which had to be removed from the film because of that. There's um, Ifran Khan's in this film and has like significant scenes with Risa fans early on, and then. <coughs> <laughs> the lizard is looking for him on the bridge in actually I think probably one of the best big set pieces in this movie. Um but the lizard kind of runs away and and then we never see Ifran Khan again. <laughs> and he's been a big part of the movie up to that point. And if you look at the trailers and interestingly there, there was the marketing for this movie Uh, as there was for the sequel, because I think Sony were just so desperate to make these films a success. They put out a full 25 minutes worth of the movie in the form of clips and trailers, which someone edited together into a 25-minute version of the movie, which pretty much gives you every major plot beat in the film, Um, like down to the last, you know, the last um, sequence in the third act, the, you know, top of the tower stuff. Um... And you can, but you can see stuff in there if you watch it of Efron Khan and uh, where that was leading. And there's a line in one of the trailers where Efron Khan is quite clearly having a kind of like deathbed speech to Peter, revealing some key information about Peter's past to him. So you know, all the way through the movie, there's stuff that's changing, and there's um, the scene where Peter gives the napkin with the um, uh, algorithm or whatever it is on the formula to (laughs) Kirk Connors, there is a shot in the trailer of Peter giving that formula to Kirk Connors, but on a big blackboard in clearly a a completely different scene that looked much more, a a much more elaborate setup that they'd been (laughs) forced to completely reshoot. And I do wonder whether, yes, this film would not have been a good Spider-Man movie with that other stuff in it, 
but at least it might have been coherent and done the <laughs> yeah. thing done the thing that I that I maintain that this film did not do, which is tell any story. It like at least Peter's quest for his for answers about himself and and a search for for an identity. It might not have worked in that context, but it would have been something. And it would have been something. I feel like this film has like a reputation for being mediocre because you kind of just drift through it with nothing happening, with scenes that are barely connecting to each other. And the pacing is so bad and the, the plot strands, like the fact that stuff like Ifran Khan is dropped and Peter hunting for his father's killer is dropped. And, you know, we'll get a bit of flirting with Gwen Stacy and then she won't be on screen for half an hour and then we'll be back to doing that again. And the opening five minutes of the film are about Peter's parents running away. Why is so much time at the start of the film spent on packing up a house and running away? It's just... I mean, that that sort of feeds into actually the the bigger problem I have with the all the stuff with Peter's parents and it's the fact that the film chooses to open it and then the second one does as well yeah. the opening of the second film is about well, the second it. film like... clearly did the same thing as well the second film <laughs> had a load of stuff that it then had well, to chop out but yeah. again the same plot the same yeah. the mystery of who Peter Parker is because Mark Webb obviously wanted to tell that story he obviously yeah. had that in mind was that was the crux of his Spider-Man and he wasn't able to tell that story in the first one tried to tell it again in the second one and all that got cut again <laughs> But it's and it's like because there are two ways in which that plot completely fails to understand Spider-Man. And the first part is, as I discussed, you know, this whole kind of special chosen one narrative. The other part is actually a a bigger problem for me, which is if you open a Spider-Man film by going, okay, what we need to do that's never really been done before is to look at Peter's real parents then you have so fundamentally missed the point. Because, okay, Richard and Mary Parker are Peter's biological parents, and, you know, they die or otherwise disappear in various versions of continuity when he's very young. But they are not really his parents. May and Ben are Peter's parents, and they are the only parents that he needs. And, you know, the single most important defining event in Peter Parker's entire life, and always will be, no matter what he does until the day that he dies, is the fact that his Uncle Ben gets shot by somebody who he could have stopped. And you completely devalue both his relationship with May and Ben in the first place and the power of that moment if he has a set of parents who he misses and thinks about all the time who are as important to him as May and Ben are. Mm. It's just, you know, everything you want to do with with Uncle Ben. And it's like, there are loads of, we'll come to it, but there are loads of great moments with Uncle Ben in this film because Martin Sheen's yeah, brilliant yeah. And, and overcomes the material. I would say, uh, but the- they lose their significance because it's like, the film has already shown you at the very beginning. Like, if you, the, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, like most Spider-Man comics, never show you Peter's original parents because the whole point is, when you meet him, he's living with May and Ben, they are his parents. This film opens by saying they're his secondary parents. You've you've met his real parents, but May and Ben are just the people who he goes off to live with when his parents disappear. Mm -hmm. You've completely stripped that relationship of any significance, and no matter what they try and do, and they do some good stuff with May in the films as well, and partic- I think in the second one, again, Sally Field's one of the few good things about it, but, like, 
it doesn't matter. None of it matters because what you've said is May and Ben, they're not really important. What's really important is Richard and Mary, two characters who in 50 years of <laughs> Spider-Man comics have probably only appeared about 20 or 30 times because every so often someone goes, <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe we should do something with Peter's parents. And then they start to do it and then they go, oh, do you know what? That was a really bad idea, wasn't it? And then they get forgotten about for another 10 years. It's just... Hmm. It's it's just staggering that anyone could ever look at the history of Spider-Man comics and go, do you know what what what's really been missed is doing something proper with with Peter's original parents and and we're the people to do it. We're going to improve <laughs> Spider-Man by making this be about his genius scientist. I kind father. like I kind of I kind of think the only reason that crops up at all was because they were like grasping for things that the previous films hadn't touched on. Yeah, like they were deliberately attempting to to you know go into new territory and that was all that was left partly because the Raimi films were so comprehensive in their yeah. in their treatment of the origin like it's it's such a weird like like conflagration of circumstances that gets this is Paige the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To that opening half hour working so badly in that it's so close to the origin being told already. Um, you, you, you're undercutting all of the Uncle Ben's stuff with the parents. But then the fact that the parents are there but isn't told properly means that that is the stuff that should be the balancing act in the first half, the counterbalance to, the, obviously the way the movie was planned, the counterbalance to the stuff that you've all we've all seen already. So because that was supposed to be there, but it's not there, then it, it leads this origin story that everyone goes, oh, God, I've seen this before. God, Marvel, when you do this new Spider-Man movie, don't bloody do the origin again. We, we've seen it a million times. Mm-hmm. And I think that is because 
this film had something else there that was that was there to counterbalance it and is then gone. And you know, if you are going to have the brass balls to go, look, we're going to retell Spider-Man's origin in this different way, then at least have the courage of your convictions and stick with it. And I don't blame Mark Webb for that. This is obviously a decision that Sony made and Sony have mishandled this character for the better <laughs> part of a decade and a half now. Um, but yeah, it's just this, 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 these circumstances all come together to just make that first half hour, 45 minutes in terms of the origin story and in terms of this untold story just seem like a mess because it's there and it's not, and it's distracting and it, it, it but it's yeah, it, it, it just pulls all the wrong strings and none of the right ones. And it's a disaster. <laughs> I think you've nailed it. It was actually I, I I hadn't seen it since originally seeing it at the cinema, and um, I, when I I think because did I review it for film four? I definitely wrote a review, so I think I must have reviewed it for film four. And I don't know if film four had stars in those days, but it was pretty. I would I would have called it a solid three star. Yeah, and there were definitely things I was positive about in the review. So I've generally come away from this thinking. Um, it's obviously not as good as the first two Raimi films, but when I did, I did an article for Den of Geek ranking all of the Spider-Man films, and I think I had this number three. I think I had this ahead of Spider-Man three. Mm. I would not put this ahead of Spider-Man three now. I, really <laughs> I put it ahead of its sequel, obviously, but actually, this does not. You see, top. I was even thinking the of this of the Raimi films. I was thinking of this in context to the last film we did in the podcast, which was Iron Man two, which you can say for all its flaws, and it has lots of them. It has a story and it attempts to sell that story and it sometimes gets confused by weaker elements. How that film has a worse reputation yeah. than, Spy- <laughs> than The Amazing Spider-Man much is insane to me. As soon as you look beyond the surface of this movie, as soon as you like go, oh, okay, so let, let, let me strip this down to its constituent parts and look at how that works and how that works and how that works. And I think, again, watching it with the context of what the second movie did with a lot of this stuff. And obviously that franchise is dead. The story is gone. It, we're not going to get any more of that. So much of this is just a complete waste of time. Um, and I think one of the things that led to a lot of people thinking, yeah, it's okay. Three stars. It's fine. Is the romance with Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy. And she is fantastic. Like, Emma Stone is wonderful in this movie. She is, like... I think her and Martin Sheen are the two clear standouts. And obviously Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone have this chemistry. And, you know, that that spilled over into real life. And so the scenes (laughs) that they share together have, have that spark and that fizz. But... That I, I feel like that chemistry and, and, and people who say, oh, but the romance is good. But is it? <laughs> is it or is it yeah. just that you've put two actors together on screen mm. who have chemistry and saddled, saddled them with bad dialogue? And, I mean, Gwen Stacy's not a good character. This that, That's not a well-written character. She doesn't have much yeah, she's not do. really she's not really doing anything or thinking anything. No. She's mm. just there as a sort of trophy girlfriend that he and, can get. And the way, I mean, I, I, that, that obviously the moment at the end of the film where Peter breaks his promise. <laughs> um, yeah. 
I don't I don't understand the intention of that scene from like anyone involved in the making of this film thinking that that was a good idea because it, like, because even it, down it, it, to the to the final line is sometimes the best promises are the ones you can't keep like it is well, not, literally yeah, but, meaningless yeah but not the like well, also, not the that, promises that you've made to the dying dad yeah, of a that's, woman that's who, the thing like, like it's, it's it's like watching the first Spider-Man film and seeing the huge sacrifice that Spider-Man makes at the end of the film, which <laughs> proves that he has got the point of the power responsibility yeah. thing. <laughs> like, maybe if Martin best, Sheen had been able to deliver the bloody line <laughs> at the start of the film, he'd have got it, but he doesn't. They completely fuck up that scene, and then Spider-Man has no idea what he's doing for the rest of the film, and then at the end of the film concludes that being Spider-Man is about being a selfish arsehole that endangers the people you love. Uh, yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah, I think you've got a, got a lot of anger to vent. <laughs> you've here. got under the skin. Well, no, of I mean, and Emma Stone smiles like, oh, he's defying the wish of my dead father." Could he have done that? Her dead Could father, he have done who, that? who, by the way, I would say that, like, well, I was going to say the the most sympathetic and well drawn character in the film, but I would actually go so far as to say as the only sympathetic and well drawn character in the film <laughs> is Captain Stacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In in the relatively short screen time that he gets, and I don't think I'd ever thought I'd say this about a character played by Dennis. <laughs> yeah, Leary, I was but, stunned. Um, by that. Absolutely you know, stunned. It's the most likable thing about the film. Do you think they intentionally cast the guy who is most outwardly similar to Willem Dafoe in Hollywood just to subvert <laughs> it and make him the hero? Um, but yeah, I, I was just, I was just, I couldn't believe that moment at the end of the film coming. That's like a triumphant moment where he's realised, no, nah, I can be with Gwen. Could he not realise that two weeks earlier if he was going to come to that decision and actually accompanied her to the funeral and comforted mm. her when she was grieving the death of her father rather than skipping out on that horrible period in her life to at the moment where she's ready to smile. And honestly, that the, the smile that Emma Stone gave, I was like, oh, God, that this character has been so badly treated by yeah. this movie. She shouldn't be smiling there. She should be going, fuck this guy. It, it hadn't occurred to me, and, and kind of until you uh, went off on that one, that the um, actually specifically the line, sometimes the best promises are the ones you don't keep, is actually the exact 100% opposite of the most fundamental principle of Spider-Man's character. Because the best promise, as far as Peter Parker is concerned, is with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's like the promise that Peter makes to his dead uncle is... I will live by that and yeah, I will never I'll not, ever I'll not let this let happen that again. Not be the case. Yeah. yeah. It's like the whole point is that Peter doesn't break that promise. You know, yeah. he might and occasionally like again, for like, the purpose of a story that when he realizes that he's done the wrong thing, but essentially his entire ethos is to not break that promise. He's not going to intentionally go I am yeah. actively not learning the lesson that this movie should have had me learning. Yeah, yeah, and it's as well. And again, I'm I'm pretty sure we we said this on the 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 first Raimi film podcast because when we were talking about the ending of that film and stuff, like again, a pretty key part of of Peter Parker's character is Peter Parker's life would probably be better if he wasn't Spider. Like his life as Peter Parker would be better if he wasn't Spider Man. His life mm. as Peter Parker suffers and he can't do everything that he wants to do 
and it suffers because of the fact that he's Spider-Man. It was a really good running thread in Superior Spider-Man because one of the things that the Ock does is to go, well, how come he's letting himself have such a crappy life as Peter Parker? Yeah, why why doesn't sure he, he has invent a great some life robots that Parker. does everything for him? Yeah, and so he tries to give Peter Parker a better life and realises that he can't be a successful and, Spider-Man while doing the same And where the are the thing. moments in this and film? And the end of this film is him saying, I get to have everything, I get to have the life mm. that I want as Peter and my life with Gwen... And I get to be Spider-Man. Actually, I would therefore... I mean, as as opposed as I am to the idea of fridging Gwen in the second film just because it happened in the comics and that's how it's meant to be, at least what they did there was to teach him a lesson <laughs> that he can't have it. <laughs> I mean, that is textbook fridging, but, you know, at least they recognised that he shouldn't be allowed yeah, but to I think always this, have this happy life. Obviously, this ending was done... I, I, I firmly believe they knew exactly what they were doing with Gwen Stacy from the moment they introduced her in this first film. Of I think I, w- I was surprised yeah. that it came at the end of the second film. Like, not not when that film was coming up, but I've, if you'd have asked me at the end of the first one, when do you think they'll do that? I mean, Emma Stone's <laughs> yeah. so good, I would have said probably at the end of third the third film. one. Yeah. <laughs> what they should have done was kill Peter and, and made the films be about oh, Gwen. God, that would be, be amazing. I mean, they've, they've already got the lizard in the first film. They could have done it. It would have yeah. worked. Yeah. Incidentally, um, The Amazing Spider-Man 3 was due to be released June 10th this year. Um, <laughs> the Amazing Spider-Man 4 was scheduled for May 4th, 2018. Um, and Sinister, Sinister 6. 6 was coming yeah. out November 11th this year. Now, Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man 3 was eventually moved back into The Amazing Spider-Man 4's slot. And obviously, they're not happening anymore. In in, in future, when you look up the word hubris in a dictionary, <laughs> there's just going to be a picture of that press release from Sony. Well, and and the um, the Fantastic Four re- sequel thing <laughs> that was quietly removed mm. from Fox's schedule at the end of last year. Surprising um, no one. Yeah, but we we should say Emma Stone is really fantastic. The fact yeah. that she is so likable in that role. I mean, like I said, there isn't any arc to the romance of Peter and Gwen and I actually think he treats her but fairly she, she, badly she kind of makes you think that there is it's sort yeah. of she she sells that role and that romance so well that you assume that it must be better written than it is <laughs> but I do I do get from, from Emma Stone I do get a feeling from her and from the character throughout that film of I'm I'm too good for this. It's like throughout the film there is just a sense of you know she's far cooler than Peter and like in almost every one of her scenes, I, d- I don't mean that she sounds bored. I just every time she's in the film and speaking dialogue, there is just a sense of you're kind of above this, aren't you? <laughs> you know? um, Same goes you, for you've wandered in from you've wandered in from a better film, yeah, and you've wandered in and taken one look at it and gone. <sighs> I tell you what, though, I would be entirely unopposed to the idea of a Spider Gwen movie. Starring Emma Stone with Andrew Garfield oh, playing the lizard. Yeah, that would well, that's, be Well, that's great. because, like, <laughs> the the only thing these films really nail is the chemistry between those two characters. So, like, you can imagine seeing them together in a better film. Mm. And, like, the look of Gwen is perfect, and Garfield isn't a great Peter Parker, but he's, you know possible but as as far as when you're saying like you know the only good things about the film i mean we should talk about martin sheen because obviously ben is quite underserved by the plot but every single moment that he gets is great and it's almost no offense to cliff robertson who i I think was a great ben but if you gave martin sheen 
the, the Uncle Ben yeah. of the Raimi films. <laughs> yeah. It would just be so perfect. He is just like every single scene. It's like every time. I mean, almost all he does in the film is tell Peter off. And yet, you're on his side every time. He does oh, the, mo- right. the moment in the school love, where he tells the Gwen that school, there's a picture that on the computer. Fantastic moment. Yeah, I love that. He's just. Oh, yeah. It feels like something I mean, that it, my dad would do. You know, like it yeah, feels like such really, an identifiable moment. It's it's only really two key scenes that he really gets, which is the one where he's angry at Peter when Peter hasn't picked up May, and the scene at the school. But both of those scenes are just head and shoulders above everything else that happens. I mean, she's she's great in that scene, casting. but again, they get the power responsibility speech. Oh, God, like yeah. like <laughs> Sheen delivers the lines really well. But you can imagine a lesser actor delivering those lines and just going, oh my god, this scene is broken. It's the iconic scene in Spider-Man and it's broken. Also, (laughs) do you know what's almost even worse than actually mangling the phrase itself? Is the fact that it's preceded by, your father had a code that he lived by. It's like, no, it's Ben's message. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You don't need to say it was your father's moral core. It's Ben's moral core. That's why Peter lives the life that he does. It's just, it's like it's almost like Ben saying, "I don't really agree with it myself," (laughs) but your dad used to say this. It doesn't even make any sense, like in the context of what we see of Richard Parker. Like nothing, nothing he does suggests anything about power and responsibility. Also, again, it's quite there's the a hint of malevolence about him. Yeah, he experiments on his son and he's, you know, <laughs> running away from the government. And <laughs> We mentioned this you know, off the podcast. He abandons there his is, child. There is a deleted scene from the end of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 where Richard Parker turns up at Gwen Stacy's funeral, which should just speak to so much of the confusion about what was going on in these two films <laughs> and the whole Peter's dad stuff. <laughs> How because does he even know Gwen Stacy? That is fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he knows that Peter's going to be there, and he, you know, well, he's uh, been planning it all along. Him he's probably been watching. Ah, yeah. oh, dumb, Pretty dumb, dumb, dumb. But it is just. I mean, I. It does speak to the fact that, again, what I was saying right at the beginning about not even fully following through on the fact that you're doing a reboot if they had admitted to themselves from the start this is a full-on reboot then they wouldn't have had any qualms about reusing the power and responsibility line Mm. but because they didn't want to completely go wholesale on it they have to do an altered version of it and it's like no you've got martin sheen just have Martin Sheen say the words with great power just comes say great the responsibility. Line. Go on. If he just says that one line, you can put a you can put a whole star on the star rating of this movie because <laughs> it would be all it'd be it all the way up to one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm aware there are listeners out there listening to this who uh, because I, I remember Seb, you got in an argument with someone on Twitter pre-Christmas who was like um, saying that was completely. Um, bemused by the fact that um, these Sam Raimi Spider-Man films were revered and I know there are a lot yeah. of people out there who really like these films and like, like they, they particularly like Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys about the lizard because what I found completely baffling about the, the villain in this movie and you know we've spoken before about how you know a good villain has a relationship with the hero and that that, that can kind of that you know that raises the stakes when the two characters know each other. I I mean, I don't know how the lizard works on the page because I've never seen him really. I've never read a lizard story. I've seen him pop up in comics, but I've never read a lizard story. 
he can't function like this on the page, right? Where he just basically Kurt Connors turns into the lizard, and when he's the lizard, he also gets a personality transplant. No, uh, yeah, that's that's what happens. So he's just never the same guy <laughs> at, at all. Uh, no, see, I I think I think it's I think it's a, a a problem with this film actually is that sort of if the lizard's going to work, then because essentially, yeah, what happens is when he becomes the, like Kurt Connors is basically a good bloke. He's a he's a nice guy. He's a dedicated scientist, and he's a family man. And it is a Jekyll and Hyde thing. And it's a, when he becomes the lizard, as well as becoming this like lizardish monster, um, there is a personality side that is essentially you know that has the kind of moral inhibitions removed. But there is a lot of him fighting for control of that as well and like he can be the lizard and not necessarily be a monster at the same time but i think the problem and james i mean i don't know if you're describing i think the problem that this film has is that you never have any reason to like kurt connors when he's kurt connors so because part of the thing about the lizard as well is that it's a quite tragic story the point is that he's this scientist who lost his arm he's trying to find a way to grow one back he's Mm. trying to look after his family and it leads to him becoming this monster um and if they had done that with dylan baker's kurt connors who admittedly doesn't get much character development in the raimi films but you can see that he's a decent bloke yeah um in this reese fans kurt connors is kind of an arsehole well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and so when he becomes yeah. the lizard it's just he's a bit more, he's a lot more of an asshole, but yeah. even when you yeah. see the side of him that you could like you're not sure whether you are supposed to like him because of the exactly there is there is an undercurrent of should we trust this guy or not yeah. because it's tied into all of the secrecy with his father and stuff but really for the lizard to work you have to unambiguously like and trust kurt connor's the character himself mm. I think. But that, I think sort of most Spider-Man stories involving the Lizard are about Peter trying to save Kurt Connors. Yeah, exactly. Like that's because yeah, Kurt Connors is as much the victim. Yeah, as the it's villain. tough to make the yeah. character work given that he's just a kind of malevolent scientist when he's the Lizard. Mm. Whereas the like the primary force of of those Lizard stories tends to be, I have to stop what the lizard's doing and also restore Kate Connors because he doesn't deserve to this fate. Yeah. And like that's that's their relationship on the page and that doesn't come across in the film at all really. Yeah, I, I thought that the lizard was pretty squarely a disaster of a villain. When he when he's the lizard he looks like he looks like a Goomba from the <laughs> Mario Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And when he's Reesefans, like I, I, I have, I have liked Reesefans in things, but in this, he's just there's no like charisma or. (laughs) I in the scene when Peter is visiting him at his house, I'm fairly sure that all of his dialogue has been ADR'd, and I wonder if he originally played Connors with an American accent, and that was the first scene that they shot, (laughs) and his accent didn't work, and they redubbed it with him doing an English accent. I tell you what, I couldn't quite believe the scene where he's like down in the sewers and he's talking to a voice inside his head in a like evil version of his voice. I was like, are you actually doing that? And it clearly wasn't like, it clearly wasn't an elaborately planned scene and like an homage to Willem Dafoe in the first Spider-Man movie. It was, shit, we've had to cut that big sequence with Afan Khan <laughs> and we we need to find something to put in its place Lizard talking to himself angrily kind of having a golem <laughs> moment 
Uh, I mean, the stuff with when they did it with Willem Dafoe, it works really well because he's just so completely unhinged mm. and it's really good fun. But uh. and you think about that film, like uh, the first Spider-Man film, the Green Goblin is not one of its greatest achievements, but you know that character of Norman Osborn inside out. You know exactly what motivates him. That you know the the film goes to pains to mm. basically mirror his origin with Peter's and tie those two characters together in a in a in a understandable way that you've got Harry there as the connective tissue and this film I didn't feel like I knew Kurt Connors at all and any time that I had spent investing in who he was was completely removed because there was nothing about Kurt Connors and what he wanted to achieve that related to the lizard and what the lizard wanted to achieve, which was seemingly to turn people into lizard-like creatures as well, only for them to run off screen and never be seen again, because that's another plot point that we're going to drop. Um, <laughs> should we, what, what do you guys think of the costume? No. It's terrible. Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> fuck off. Completely gonna, redesigned for the Amazing Spider-Man If you're going to mess with a design classic, you have to have a very good reason. And all they had, like... I can't. All the reasoning I can see for this is we've got to make some new action figures and they have to look different, so they can sit on the shelves. Like literally, even now, you can. I see stuff with the Amazing Spider-Man design still in Toys R Us. People are still <laughs> thinking maybe if we leave it, someone will accidentally buy it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are several. Because I actually think there are a lot of see, like a lot of the best sequences in this involve. Uh, him in costume swinging around being Spider-Man like you know technology had advanced to a point where they could do more of it you have the little first person mirror's edge sequence you You have all you know the stuff the bit with the Carthy we've also got I will just touch on the um, like the anomalous moment in this film that is like the one moment where they actually understand the character of Spider-Man and it's a single (laughs) line of dialogue well, it's when he's rescuing the kid from the car. Yeah. Um, and he takes his mask off and, and goes, look, it's just me, it's not a guy, which is a really Spider-Man thing to do anyway. Aside, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> him being accidentally cavalier with a secret identity. And I think it, I think they partly wanted it as a, an homage to um, the kid who collects Spider-Man, which at some point we'll get you to read. It's not this week's recommendation, but I'll get you to read it at some point. Um, but it's when he says to the kid, put the mask on, it'll make you stronger. It's, yes! Mm. Well done. You've actually <laughs> yeah. understood an element of Spider-Man's I, character. I thought that whole well sequence done. was maybe the standout sequence in the movie. Him saying mm-hmm. it's fantastic. I, I mean, I, I think that I think that remembering that scene when I came out of the film <clears throat> was probably partly responsible for me giving it a more positive review than I think of it now because I loved that scene so much and that scene just nailed so much of. It's like it's been parachuted in, written by somebody who actually understands the well, character. That's also it's, it's the thing of it has no business being in this showing film. a superhero you actually rescue someone as well which is something that Marvel films especially really you know skimp on well and I think that's one of the Um, few moments in the film where Peter or Spider-Man helps someone for purely selfless reasons yeah yeah Yeah. that's one of the very few Um, moments and I think it works it works really really well Um, but then again I would compare it to maybe four or five moments from the original Spider-Man trilogy, which mm-hmm. I think it would fit in with. It wouldn't feel out of place. It wouldn't feel worse yeah. then. But it, it certainly didn't... Like, it was just like, oh, that was a good moment, like those five moments that, that I'd seen previously. But to sort of... I mean, to sort of bring it back to, to why I brought that up, which is to say, there are, you know, there are a few good moments of him being Spider-Man. And I also think they... I think they get the movement of him 
in the costume much better than the Raimi films did. There's a there's there's a point where um, you see like news footage of him. It's when he's first dropped off the the first criminal that he leaves for the police, and he's scurrying away across the building, and he looks like a spider crawling along yeah, the wall yeah, yeah, yeah. in the distance. And it's like, oh, he. You can see why people would call him Spider Man, even if they don't know that that's the name that he's chosen for himself. <laughs> he looks like a spider crawling away. And whenever he's swinging around, and he's and even that very last shot of the film, you know, the kind of hero shot at the end, mm-hmm. all of that stuff looks great, except for the fact that I just watch it and think, if only he was in the proper costume <laughs> yeah. for all of those bits and if only he was in the costume from Amazing Spider-Man 2 which is the best Spider-Man costume that's been done on film mm-hmm. so far it is actually yeah, better exactly, than the yeah. Raimi one because it gets the eyes right um, and again you know he looks thin and, and spindly but just for this film I think the problem with it is is that I, I don't mind doing things like changing the lines of the costume you know I, I don't have a problem with that because it's you know it's a fairly limited design and you can tweak it it's the fact that it's so dull it's this really dark blue and dark red and it just basically he just looks like he's wearing dark purple it all blends in and Spider-Man's costume should be this kind of bright red and bright blue that stand out yeah. from one another um, and he's got and the eyes kind of change throughout the film. Sometimes they just look really dark, and then at other points they look orange. And it's well, just so much. Of the film takes place at muddy. night as well. Right. Like there's there's well, very yeah, few daytime it. sequences, which doesn't. I mean, help. Sp- Spider-Man Three has that problem as well. But yeah. you you don't need to be shooting a Spider-Man film at night. This is I, I said this on Twitter while I was watching the film. So basically. You can tell from a superhero film when what the director really wanted to make was a Batman film, um, <laughs> and if they've shot it at night, that's usually a pretty. I big. Batman is the only character whose films need to be shot almost entirely at I night. I kept having to remind myself that it was in New York as well. It just doesn't feel, especially. Um, it is the least oh, New York film, isn't it? <laughs> except there is one shot that again is one of the best moments of the film, and it's when he's exploring his powers and he's doing that little handstand on his fingers, mm. and there's a completely gratuitous shot of New York in the background <laughs> that is really beautifully shot and looks great and it's a really nice it would be a really nice iconic image if not for the fact that you completely forget it because the film's mostly crap. <laughs> in relation to that kind of Spider-Man being Spider-Man moments, that trailer the the first trailer for the movie which is like the first half is Spider-Man, the untold story you know, we're going to get to find out this secret origin of Spider-Man which we don't see and then the, the kind of the final 15-20 seconds of the trailer is dedicated to this long POV shot which you mentioned Seb this idea of like web slinging um, but from mm. Spider-Man's POV and it's a real kind of statement of intent of this yeah. is how the uh, the the Spider-Man we're going to see in action in this movie is going to mm. be different that's how the origin is going to be different this is how the actual look and feel of the movie is going to be different and, and the shot the shot in the trailer is about three or four times as long as the one <laughs> yeah. that ends up in the movie because they they chop it up oh. and they drop little bits of it in and it's like where's the rest of it yeah this was the re- this was the stuff that you sold this film <laughs> and on. then yeah. and then so much of the web scene you're right they get the movements of spider-man right but so much of the action feels generic because the, because they had this idea of something different and then step back from actually showing it if that had been how he you know was web slinging through new york the whole way through the movie it would have given the movie a really unique feel separate to the Spider-Man movies. And mm. it's it's another opportunity passed up. And I mean, the film for me just seems... There's so many of those. There's so many things that like I kind of, li- I kind of like and then it's undercut. Like <clears throat> I, I, one of my favourite moments of the movie is 
their kiss up on the rooftop. Really? And, yeah. Well, I like. I like. I like the way that he just kind of. I like the way that he reveals to her with the like grabbing her with the web, and like there's none of this like withholding who he is from her. Like he's <laughs> gonna he's gonna tell her straight away because he that's more important. Except to him, and then like a second later, like she's trying to respond to the shock of it, and he just tells her to shut up and keeps kissing her. Well, I was going like, to say, that's the, the, that's the very the bit. fact of him saying shut up in this romantic moment is... That, yeah. That's why I was surprised, because I was like, in that scene, what he does is tell her a bunch of stuff, shout shut up in her face, and then kiss her. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure women don't like that. Most people don't like that in general, mm. if you shout shut well, up at and- them. It's it, it's it's entirely in keeping with a character who, and I had completely forgotten that this even happens in the film. Discovers that his hand can stick to things by ripping off uh, a woman's shirt. Uh, and, her and I know it's by accident, but who thought that that would be a good idea uh-huh. to have as the scene where he discovers? And he beating has guys up on a subway sake. train who haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> Yeah, literally all this guy... What happens is, this guy sees a guy who comes up, rips off his his friend's shirt. I don't know if he's meant to be her boyfriend because he's a bit older than her, but basically rips off a woman's shirt. He goes to go, hey, you're essentially assaulting a woman on the subway, and Peter beats him up. Well, they all yeah. they all get the crap kicked out of them, and it's supposed to be a kind of slapsticky scene. Um, and I guess it's a sort of, oh, it's accidental and he doesn't understand. Because yeah, do, what is. I do quite like is the sequence when he wakes up and he's breaking everything at home because he doesn't realise he has super strength. Mm. So it's an, it, you know, it's an extension of that, but it's just so badly judged. Because you're looking at this and you're like, this guy's meant to be the hero? This this, this is Spider-Man? Especially, just... like, especially when you compare it as well to the Raimi movies, which do that sequence of discovery like so perfectly. Uh, yeah. And like yeah. they, they so put in like the, the metaphor of... Like, oh, you know, your body's changed. Like, for him to be doing that in his bedroom and, you know, I don't want to get yeah. in I don't have to and explain the, the subtext. Things, but... One of the things that this removes from the origin, despite taking as long, if not longer than the Raimi films, <laughs> is him actually learning how to use his powers. Mm-hmm. Like, mm. and it replaces that with him building shit himself like the organic web shooters. Uh, like the sorry, like the, the mechanical web mechanical web shooters, which like it just doesn't <laughs> I mean, work. It's kind of funny, isn't this, it? Because the like, only as... reason that that is in this film is because it was something that people had complained about ten years previously. Yeah, so they obviously looked at it and went, "What can we do to make ourselves distinct from the Raimi films?" I know people complained about those organic web shooters ten years ago. Let's have him be do the mechanical that web little shooters. Lock the on problem his door. is the moment the Raimi film came out nobody complained about the web shooters anymore because mm. it made sense in the context of the film by the time the second and third films were coming out it was reasonably accepted like you would have people who didn't know the comics who would always assume that it was part of yeah, his power like, because even, it perfectly makes sense even to be a as, part of his power even as a Spider-Man purist I think changing changing the mechanical web shooters to organic ones is not a big deal like you lose and it's actually a choice that makes yeah, sense you lose something so minor and gain as much like and he there's... has to bing it. Ah, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about something very, very positive about this movie. The single best Stanley cameo ever. Right? That's so <laughs> yeah. good. That sequence would... is amazing. I mean, I wouldn't call it the best, but it's probably the first. I think it's the best. <laughs> like, I, I can't remember one that I've enjoyed quite as much as that. It's just... It's... Uh, more rats. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, well, Marvel cameo. No, yeah. I, I was um, it's, yeah, yeah. it's It's... <laughs> 
it has like a poetry that scene. It's <laughs> it's five minutes of pure bliss or five seconds of pure bliss surrounded by absolute nonsense. But it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so it, good. It's one of a handful of very brief moments of imagination and fun, and it's like. When I mean, I know you don't like 500 Days of Summer, but when Mark Webb was announced as doing this, I looked at some of the like you know the more whimsical stuff that 500 Days of Summer does, and thought, great, that there's going to be like a lightness of touch and a creativity of direction that will add something a bit different to a Spider-Man film. I think film. Webb gets that, and in the in... end, we don't get that apart from those couple of tiny, tiny yeah, they moments, are tiny moments. It's like the the moment where he kind of has his footloose moment on the skateboard in the factory. Oh, the cold place. Well, no, that's not. That's, <laughs> no, well, the, that's the, the scene is great. Like it, it's, no, it's it feels individual to this movie, and it feels like a one of the few moments of just pure fun. And the one of Peter the few, Parker few moments... is not a character who should ever have familiarity with a. Well, ball. no, but the but the fact that they set him up like that, and that this was a moment for a brief moment where Peter was enjoying himself. I liked that character. And it's completely undercut by Coldplay. Just a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre choice in, in this movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They should they should have just put the same song as in the um, musical sequence in 500 Days of Summer, which I forget what the song is. Um, um, you Make My Dreams Come True. Is that actually the name of the song? Uh, the, where he's dancing down the street. Yeah, yeah. yeah you Make My yeah. Dreams Come True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they should have just had That's that the best, over that sequence. Best, in fact, can someone do movie? a fan edit and put that on YouTube? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but the, well, that's the sequence in 500 Days of Summer that made me think, oh, you know, something like that in a Spider-Man. Not literally a song and dance sequence, because we already had that in Spider-Man 3, and it was better than everyone thinks. Well, but this, like, this... Um, but yeah, just something with a bit of imagination. This kind of makes me wonder about Mark Webb as a filmmaker, because one of the things I really dislike about the film in general is that stylistically... Like, it's basically, he's tried to make a mumblecore superhero film. Mm. And, like, I don't think that works, because you need, like, tight themes and tight direction. I think it could work on a very small, on, on yeah. a very small on something, Spider-Man story. On something like Chronicle, I think you could get away with it. No, if but I think, tra- they could, I think there's a Spider-Man movie that would work for this. It's just not a $250 million movie. Yeah, it's okay, yeah. 80, I'll, give, I'll give you that. Movie. Yeah. But like um, it just so much of, of this some film. Some of the scenes of them kind of like of Gwen and um, Gwen and Peter talking to each other in the school corridors, which are kind of mumblecore. Yeah, okay. And- when when I saw that preview, I came out of the that was one of the scenes, and I remember like literally phoning Seb to say they fucking nailed that sp- the the Peter and Gwen thing. It's going to be great. Yeah, I remember I spoke to Reese. I'd seen, um, I was working at Empire Big Screen, uh, former podcast guest Reese. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, there's, they showed two scenes. And I was like, one was really encouraging. It was Peter and Gwen in the corridor chatting. And I said, it felt mumblecore And Reese was like, I think I'd quite like to see a mumblecore Spider Man. And then, <laughs> but the other sequence was one, one that ultimately didn't make the final cut of the film, which was where Lizard, in all his horrendous CGI glory, made his way out of the toilet for the first time in the school. Except there was a girl sat on the toilet, she heard a noise coming from it, stood up, looked down, and then the lizard emerged from the toilet and, like, scared off two girls from the girls' bathroom. And it was incredibly creepy. And not in a creepy villain way, just in a, like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, I think, as well, 
thinking about things like the the dinner scene where you get the sense that they've everyone's been told here's roughly your topic just sort of improvise around it <laughs> like as as someone who likes tight writing and you know strong ideas i feel like getting your actors to improvise on on this type of film is a very bad idea and maybe mark webb wasn't the right choice if that was what he was going to do Mark Webb is a terrible choice. There is nothing about Mark Webb as a filmmaker that makes sense that he would he should direct Spider-Man movies. It's, yeah, it's kind of like they got Mark Webb and said, "Can you be Tim Burton?" I would say it would be kind of you know like a um, a warning sign to all the studios that think they can just pick up directors <laughs> from anywhere and think they can handle a Superman mo- uh, a superhero movie, but then you get the Russo brothers, mm-hmm. you know. And and yeah. you go well, okay. I I mean, I don't I don't think we can write off this guy who directed Cop Car doing the new <laughs> Spider Man movie because who knows? He could be great. We've seen it before, but we've also I think we've also seen Mark Webb. Um, and yeah, I I, I think it really really. I mean, I'd be more story. optimistic before Josh Trank. Uh, yeah, I I know. You see, Plucking, I, plucking, I'm, I'm not. Like, I'm I not get... willing to. I'm not willing to go with that whatsoever. I think. I think Marvel's... Josh Trank is not the problem with uh, Fantastic <laughs> Four, or certainly no. his his direction is not the problem with okay, Fantastic yeah, yeah. Four. But I think Marvel Studios has the thing of they get indie filmmakers not because they have an interesting voice, but because they're easier to manipulate. Yeah, yeah. Or they or they they see kind of a flair. Or a, a style. Yeah, they're like, well, you're you're basically competent. You've got some good ideas. We'll take you the rest of the way to a good mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Remember, Thor was directed by Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, and James Gunn and Shane Black and Joss Whedon. It's not, you know, it's it's a myth that uh, it's that the, the Edgar Wright uh, removal has perpetuated this myth, but also it it's not entirely without basis i was gonna say james gunn never did a 200 million dollar movie before no he before didn't Gunn. but he had no but i'm talking about filmmakers who have a style and identity and managed to imprint that on the big movie that they're making yeah okay. and james gunn did that and joss whedon did that and shane black certainly did that mm-hmm. um and i i don't even feel like mark webb is able to put his stamp on this um he, he just gets completely overwhelmed by the whole I mean, it's a bad script, it's badly directed, and it's obviously completely retooled two or three months before it's released, and doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. There's a quote for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of quotes, my favourite line from, from the movie, say goodbye to that arm that you dreamed of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh. I'm, I'd be interested because I'm sure that there are people listening to this who do like this because we've spoken mm. on on Twitter to people who do. So if you follow us on Twitter, um, like, please tell us what you like about it. And I don't mean that in a oh, tell us what you like about it because I don't understand it sense. I would be interested to have that conversation mm. of, you know, w- what are we missing from this I, that we didn't enjoy? Because I mean, people obviously did enjoy it. Certainly more so than. But the I mean, Seb, we, again, there are some we spoke about watching one. this for the first time, both of us, and kind of thinking, "Oh, I mean, well, yeah, that's I'm trying to well, that's fine." I but I think it's once <laughs> yeah. you, I think it's what like once you actually look at this film and, like I say, break it down beyond what's on the surface, because what's on the surface seems inoffensive 
and okay and it's still Spider-Man and it's still a superhero movie and it doesn't have like it doesn't have those standout awful moments it's just it's just everything not quite working and it doesn't work because ultimately there's nothing there so there isn't there isn't a there isn't a whiplash in this movie there isn't a there isn't a bring me my beard that you can quote and say <laughs> that's horrible there aren't those moments that you point to and go that is what's fundamentally wrong about this movie but when you break it down and go well how does the origin story work how does how does peter's arc progress throughout the movie what actually defines his romance with Gwen Stacy? What defines the lizard's plan and his plot? And ultimately, you get a movie that's two and a quarter hours long with four different plot strands which consistently fail to weave together but are just passed out from scene to scene that don't connect pretty, you know, particularly well in just average scenes. Incompetence. There's a, like, there's, it's like I said, surface level competence. Masking complete ineptitude yeah. beneath the surface, and I can imagine, and I, I can imagine because I did it watching this film, going that was disappointing, but I didn't hate it. And once I, I actually I, I, spent I think... some time thinking about it and speaking about it for an hour and a half, I fucking hate <laughs> this movie. Really hate. I think it. yeah, because because I mean, you said there's like you know there's there's no one big glaring thing to point out, and I think the, the closest that it comes to is is people. The thing I see most commonly said about this is it's pretty good. The lizard's a bit crap. Yeah, like I think the lizard is the only thing that people can point to as a that's a bit crap. In order to get into why it doesn't work, you have to basically do what we've done and go look. This isn't a Spider-Man film because it fundamentally <laughs> misrepresents Spider-Man. Ah, <sighs> yeah. I feel I feel like a weight has been lifted. <laughs> I thought this would be a nice you know nice light one to start the year off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, guys, what would you recommend me to read based on this movie? I need something good. <laughs> Anger management for beginners. <laughs> um, it's kind of difficult because I was thinking what you really need to read is a good lizard story. And there aren't many good lizard stories. So what I've come up with is the, it's probably the most recent lizard story. And in that sense, it's also quite good. I think it came out a couple of years before the movie, but I seem to think... Like, in my head, it was something they did knowing that the lizard was going to be in the next film. So maybe it ties in with that. Mm. Uh, but it's called Shed. Uh, it's from the brand new day era of Amazing Spider-Man. And it's written by Zeb Wells and it is issues number issue numbers 630 to 633. So I've got a lizard story to look forward to then. Yeah, I would say it's probably the best lizard story they've ever done, which is a low bar to clear, but... <laughs> you know it's got themes and ideas and if you don't understand the lizard by the end of this you have no hope right. um seb are you giving me a lizard story or something completely different uh something completely different but something that does still have a connection to this um so because this film came out in uh, the summer of 2012 which was around about the 50th anniversary of spider-man and this comic that I'm going to recommend you also came out in the summer of 2012 and was one of the comics that was published intended as a 50th anniversary celebration. Um, am I right in thinking you haven't yet read anything with Miles Morales in it? Um, Secret Wars, but that's it. Okay, so now you're going to. Oh. Uh, but rather than the first volume of him as Spider-Man, I'm going to recommend you Spider-Men, which is a five-issue miniseries by Brian Michael Bendis and Sarah Pacelli, 
and it is the first ever crossover between the Ultimate Universe and the regular Marvel Universe. Oh. Basically, Peter Parker goes over to the Ultimate Universe and meets Miles Morales. Amazing. Uh, and it's the whole... I mean, it's got so little plot. It's like, <laughs> other, other, other than Peter Parker goes over to the Ultimate Universe, basically nothing else happens in this comic. It's just a load of conversations about Spider-Man. <laughs> and about the meaning and significance of the character and it's like you know it's it's an adult peter parker from from the main marvel universe finding himself in a universe where a teenage version of him died mm. and it deals with some of the fallout of that and the villain in it is uh my favorite spider-man villain that isn't dr octopus um <laughs> I won't say who, but you might remember from previous uh, podcasts where I've talked about who my favourite Spider-Man I can't villain remember. is. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a really enjoyable read, and the art is fantastic because Sarah Pacelli's amazing. So it's it's just one of as a fan of Spider-Man, it's one of the most joyous Spider-Man comics. Um, okay, well those both sound very exciting. Looking ooh, forward ooh, to s- some good Spider-Man. Just quickly as well, if I can find a copy of it, a digital copy. I'm going to send you Untold Tales of Spider-Man minus one, which is a Richard and Mary Parker story. And I'm not going to tell you much more about it, but it's completely batshit. Okay, uh, we'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch. Um, And guys, we've got a Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man film coming up. And like I would say one of the things that this amazing Spider-Man film did very well was casting. So we know in the new version of Spider-Man, we've got Marisa Tomei as um, Aunt May and Tom Holland as Spider-Man. But I would like to know who your suggestions are to cast as um, Uncle Ben, Gwen, MJ, and just a villain of your choice in the upcoming MCU Spider-Man film. Um, and uh, Seb, I'll come to you first. I'm glad you're letting me go first because I am about 99% sure that James and I are going to say the same name for one right. of these. Um, but to start with, I'll, I'll, I'll take them in the order that you said. So for Uncle Ben, I kind of I, I'd forgotten, but then reminded myself that Marissa Tomei was playing Aunt May. So obviously, you've got to cast someone age appropriate. Mm. Um, and obviously I don't really want them to do the origin again, but I think you can still have Ben be involved, whether it's flashbacks or yes, whatever. Yes, that, um, that is so my suggestion. Th- this is a pretty big name for what would essentially be a glorified cameo, but I think if you want an Uncle Ben that is age-appropriate for Marissa Tomei, I can't look any further than George Clooney. Hmm. I think George Clooney would be fantastic yeah. as Uncle Ben for a, for a kind of younger Peter. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to pick a Gwen and an MJ because with the age of Tom Holland, obviously you're looking at actresses in their mid-teens and I don't know very many actresses <laughs> you, in you their mid-teens. You just used my excuse as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm also about to say the same name yeah. as you, which is that obviously Gwen Stacy should be Keenan mm-hmm. Shipka. That's just a complete and total no-brainer. So um, so for the for the villain, I thought, well, let's have a look at a villain that hasn't been done before and let's go with the Hobgoblin. And I want to go with the most recent incarnation of the Hobgoblin. Um, who <laughs> oh, back it was intru- a character who was introduced. <laughs> this, Why have you yeah, got that? I'm going to well? have to quickly change my choice. <laughs> I wonder if you're going to have the same name. Let's let's see if you be, go to the be same fair, thought gonna, process. He was going to be the Green Goblin, but so, yeah, same. Oh right, okay. You, yeah, so he could, he could be either the Green Goblin or the Hobgoblin, but. Um, so this character, who I won't name yet, because you'll see why, because I'm building to that. Um, this character 
uh, in the 90s was originally introduced as someone who stumbled across the Green Goblin's old lair and used all of the equipment to become a heroic version of the Green Goblin and had a very short-lived series where he was the Green Goblin but as a hero. Um, It was a largely failed superhero career and he sort of disappeared back into you know obscurity for a while until in dan slot's recent run um the character basically sort of via various circumstances turned bad and became the new hobgoblin um this character is phil urich who is the nephew of ben urich who is a character you may already be pretty familiar with because you've read daredevil and you've seen daredevil so part of the reason that i've read uh, read phil urich in superior spider-man Oh, okay. Of course, you've read Superior, so yeah, so you know all about. So that there was no point in holding back on that reveal. Then you already knew that it was Phil Urich, and you, you knew who he is. But um, the reason I would like to do this is because it gives us a tie to the existing MCU because he is the nephew of Ben Urich, who we've already had in Daredevil. Mm. It means that we can actually diversify the cast mm. a bit because you know all of the characters so far are white. So because we've got a black Ben Urich, we can have a black Phil Urich. <laughs> this is exactly um, you can have a nice exactly the thought process <laughs> I was going through. Yeah. Uh, you can have a nice parallel with Peter because in the in the MCU, unlike in the comics, Phil has a dead uncle mm-hmm. Ben. And I think you could play a nice parallel with him turning oh, to yeah. villainy after his uncle is killed rather than to heroism. Um, and in terms of looking at the age range, I mean, I wouldn't, he wouldn't be exactly close to Tom Holland in terms of age, but I still wanted to go for someone relatively young, um, someone who is a pretty good name at the moment, uh, John Boyega. Very cool. I'd, li- I'd like, to, well, I'd like to see Boyega in full villain mode. We, we yeah. kind of half saw him do that in Attack the Block. So yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Uh, James, I mean, if that, that was that your was... exact thought process. <laughs> I was going to say Michael B. Jordan, but that, that was the only, that was the See, only real difference. I thought Michael difference. B. Jordan was just a bit too old. Yeah. But, but also, I thought Michael B. Jordan would just be playing for Joe's vote a little bit. <laughs> I was surprised no, I'm just, you said I'm just, Donald Glover, to be honest. I'm just terrible with actors. So. Oh, no, but Donald Glover was my first choice, but he's yeah. too old. He's too old to be Tom Holland's villain. Yeah. Um, okay, I've quickly I've put together an alternate pitch. <laughs> <laughs> This uh, I can keep my original Ben uh, Uncle Ben choice, which was going to be Tom Hanks, because I think Ooh, if you want yeah. someone to play an old yeah. kindly man, like Tom Hanks is basically he's uh, old enough that, to you know. Uh, Tom Hanks is everybody. Yeah, I think exactly. that might have trumped Clooney. <laughs> I like I do like Clooney, but Tom Hanks I think I like, sell the hell out. In of a that. way, in a way, it seems too easy because yeah, you know he's that figure in everyone's life. Oh, and you could get Tom Hanks in just to do a flashback scene. Yeah, I feel like he'd, you know, he'd enjoy that as well. Yeah. Um, it's going to be Kieran... Kevin Bacon, though, isn't it? <laughs> uh, uh, Kenan Shipka is Gwen, obviously, because, you know, she she's just got the attitude. Like, she could do it, and it would be mm. so much better than even Emma Stone, I think. Like, Emma Stone had the look, but she's got the personality. Um, And so my revised villain... Which, I, this might not be the most well thought through pitch I've done, because I just came up with it. But um, I was thinking, one of the things you can do if you've got a young Spider-Man is uh, introduce some kind of generational conflict. And for me, if you're doing that, you want a villain who is convincingly, you know, previous generation... So, 
my casting is John Travolta as the hypno hustler. <laughs> I've no idea who that is. <laughs> he he is a disco uh, DJ who hypnotizes people with his records. It and sounds he, amazing. You know, he's basically a full like Saturday Night Fever character. He okay, disco. He's disco stew, but with. Uh, yeah. hypno- hypnotizing uh, like glasses. I tell you what, I really like. Um, I, I think I like your Hank's suggestion better, James. Um, <laughs> I obviously you've both gone Kim and Shipka, uh, which I can't di- disagree with. I, I like El Fanning, but um, I'm not. I'm not sure whether that's a better suggestion than the one you've given me. I, I only El Fanning was the only other thought I had as a possibility for Mary Jane actually as well. If you were doing them both, my like no-brainer choice for Mary Jane is an actress called Bella Thorne who you probably recognise if you if you Google her. She is um, around Tom Holland's age and red-headed and probably is, um, has that kind of glamour Mary Jane from the comics that wasn't the Kirsten Dunst version. Um, I think she would be super fantastic in that role, so I'm going to... Uh, I'll I'll add her to your suggestions, um, and then I'm going to have to go with Seb's um, Phil Urich. Um, but given that it's also James's, you basically have to choose whether you prefer John Boyega or Donald Glover as Phil Urich. No, well, James Michael James has gone for Travolta. Oh, it was Michael B. Jordan. Sorry, yeah. it was Michael B. Jordan. No, I mean I, I'm yeah. I'm going. Uh, yeah, I like I like your John Boyega. Um, I like that a lot. But yes. what, what I'm <laughs> so suggesting do I, we do is that we mash together all our three casting suggestions. I'll add Bella Thorne, James can add um, Tom Hanks, and you Tom can Hanks. add John Boyega. <laughs> and I think we've got a pretty damn good Spider-Man cast shaping up there. Um, yeah, so let's let's say that the, the pitch is tied this week. Um, I like I like a mixture <laughs> of your suggestions. That's a good result for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, you were kind of gazumped with your answer, James, so yeah. it's, it's, it's probably fair enough. Okay, that's nearly the end of our show, but before we draw things to a proper close, um, we've got a, a little announcement to make, and um, James, I think I'll probably pass it over to you to explain to the audience what, what this announcement is. It's not another baby, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so basically what we're doing is, like all good podcasts and several bad ones, uh, we're starting a Patreon account, which is kind of like a Kickstarter in that it's a way you can pay us for doing what we're doing and get stuff in return for that. But it's also, like, I want to emphasise that it's not mandatory in any way. Like, if, you know, the podcast will continue being released as it's released, it's always going to be free. Um, but if you want to support us financially, this is a way you can get something in return for, you know, basically making the podcast something that we're not losing money over. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially, we record this podcast, obviously, um, I I buy the comics that you recommend every week, we buy the films to watch, the equipment to record on the hosting space, and obviously, uh, recording and editing the podcast every week takes, um, you know, our time times three for the three of us. We, we, we need to start bribing our wives so that they let us record. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, we we would like to make money from doing this podcast to pay for those things. But we also would like to avoid putting adverts on the podcast and also, you know, basically forcing people to pay for something that they don't want to pay for. So this is 
This is a good model of if you would like to support us and you will get additional things and rewards in exchange for that support, um, that's that's yeah, a way to do it. Because we're hoping to use it to, obviously, it'll, it'll hopefully help us improve the podcast because well, cause we're hoping to launch a new website shortly that'll be more of a dedicated website. Um, we'll be able to kind of write additional things, you know, like kind of blog posts and articles. Um, it will probably increase the chances of us being able to get more guests on mm. and just generally, yeah, sort of, you know, we'll keep the podcast going regularly whatever happens but as with all patreons if we get a bit of money in it just gives us more options for things we can do and stuff we can give you yeah so <laughs> yeah uh if you want to go and check it out it should be by the time you hear this it should be up at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe yeah and obviously you'll be able to find those links links to that on twitter and facebook as well mm-hmm <laughs> Um, okay, but that definitely now is it for this week. Um, apologise for all the ranting. I'm going to go uh, <laughs> lie in a dark room for many hours. Um, if you are enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your, podca- or your podcast app of choice. And if you already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review. And we'll give you a shout out on a future show. And also now, support us on Patreon. You know you want to. <laughs> uh, you can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe on cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com or as we're a Film Divider podcast at filmdivider.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. In certain extreme situations, the law is inadequate. In order to shame its inadequacy, it is necessary to act outside the law, to pursue natural justice. This is not vengeance. Revenge is not a valid motive. It's an emotional response. No, not vengeance. Punishment. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with 2004's the Punisher. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.